The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. the song we just sang, you know, Christ our hope in life and death, and, and truth be told, I, I almost couldn't uh, make it through. Thursday, my one of my, one of my best friends and, and mentor in the faith died, Clint, Clint Clifton, and, and some of you may know him, he's, he's been around. The, the truth is, Foundation would not exist without Clint. He inspired and gave me the idea of church planting. I've never thought it before, and he was planting a church in Dumfries when I first became a Christian. And he gave his life to that work, not just to Pillar, but to church planting all around the world. I very seriously would not be in ministry if it wasn't for him. Foundation wouldn't exist if it wasn't for him. I would not have lifelong friends in Iceland if it wasn't for him. Brittany and I, we might not be married, you may not know this, Brittany and I had, had when we were dating, had, had broken up, and I was, I was still in love with her, and I, I would ask Clint what I should do, and he would say, we'll pray for her heart to turn to you again. And we prayed that Brittany would turn towards me again for a year. And our, our marriage is a result, I think, partly of the prayers of a righteous man on behalf of, of Brittany's soul. So I, I want to honor Clint this morning and pray for, for Pillar Church, who's obviously in, in deep mourning where he was pastoring, and for his wife, Jennifer. He's leaving behind five kids. They were fostering at the time as well. And it's just a deep loss. And uh, just to know that you can pray for me, my, my heart's burdened. And, and um, The truth is, though, that the world feels a little lighter. Heaven feels a little closer, and Brittany mentioned, and I agree, uh, as we were talking about it, that uh, heaven's a little more real, a little sweeter to us, because we have something, someone there we love. So, let's, let's pray and honor Clint. Even if you didn't know him, you can honor his legacy, because it's standing before you this morning. God, I pray for, for Pillar Church as they mourn Clint. His impact is greater than we'll ever know. But in some small way, God, may we, may we remember him and honor him. However long we've known him or have never met him, we can, we can give thanks to you for the work you've done in his life and through him at Pillar and here at Foundation. God, would you comfort those who are mourning, and especially Jennifer and, and the kids? 
God, we ask that you would show yourself near and that now is not the time to to wonder why, but to simply trust and to receive your comfort. Lord, I, I know that on Thursday, Clint stepped into glory. And there he waits, he awaits us. So, God, may we, we may live with the truth that he inspires in, in each one of us to give ourselves and to pour ourselves out for, for Christ, the furtherance of the gospel, to do anything for the kingdom, to see new churches started, pastors raised up, families joining the work all around the world. May, may Christ be our only hope in life so that he is in death. Lord, we're thankful for Clint and his ministry and the legacy he leaves. So we honor him and we thank you for the life that we were able to enjoy while he was here. But to be absent from the body, O oh Lord, is to be present with you. So we rejoice, even in our mourning, that Clint is with you. And we long for the day where we are united together around the table of the Lamb. Where all the tears and the pain and the sin are gone. And there's only joy and grace and worship. So uh, these moments are, are hard and bitter. But Lord, you are kind and gracious. So we trust you and give thanks to you as always in Jesus' name. Amen. Titus chapter 2. What I want to do this morning is look at how Paul in, intends or envisions the church to, to be. In your worship guide, you can see the sermon this morning is entitled, How to Be the Church. It's a bit of a cheeky title, but what, what Paul's doing in Titus is helping this, this young man who's there in Crete to help establish and put the church, this new church, in order to paint a picture, to work among that, that church, that it may have an idea of what it needs to look like. As a church is formed and its members mature, it is to mature into a particular vision, not into the vision it creates or crafts for itself, but one which God intends for us to be. We finished our study in Galatians primarily by looking at the corporate nature of the church. And in chapter 5, Paul says that we should be growing in maturity, that that fruit of the Spirit, which is really those attributes that God Himself possesses. And as we grow into conformity, into the image of His Son, we too then flourish in those, this character of joy and peace, love, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. 
So another letter of Paul here to Titus is to help encourage this brother to set in order this new church that was in danger of being ill-formed or misformed and growing into unhealthy tendencies because they lacked leadership. And there existed a culture of gospel fluency without gospel behavior. That is, it was not simply that they knew the gospel well enough, but knowing the language isn't the same as living out the gospel. And so in chapter 1, after a brief instruction to Titus to appoint these qualified elders to help lead this church, the first step in mitigating against the unhealthiness of the church, he turns from the topic of godly leaders to the issue of godly lives, particularly among the members of the church there in Crete. And that's, that's what I want to look at today. Next week we'll begin a new series in uh, the prophet Jeremiah. So today's just sort of a standalone transition. In chapter 2, he turns his attention to the godly lives of the members there as he encourages Titus to lead these brothers and sisters in this new church. So let's read Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let's go, to, let's go to 15. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God might not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live in self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for his own, for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. And let no one disregard you. Since the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is the motivation for godly living? Notice in verse 1, Paul's instruction to Titus is for him to teach 
what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. What, what is aligned with and partnered with that comes from sound biblical doctrine. And what's notice, noticeable here is that, the fo- that following this piece of instruction to teach what accords with sound doctrine is a launching into a description of the sort of behavior that various Christians of the, Cre- the Christian church were to display. If the exhortation to Titus as a teacher of the church is to teach with what accords with sound doctrine, and then the next step is for him to talk about godliness of the lives of those in the church, we can arrive at two valuable insights. First, is we can see that the role of teaching and instruction from the Word shapes the work of godliness in the lives of believers. That there is a marriage between sound doctrine and godliness. To put it another way, church, if we desire to be faithful to the picture of the New Testament church that Paul in the New Testament describes for us, we can only be so and arrive at that picture if there is sound biblical doctrine that is teaching, that informs and is the foundation of our lives, rooted in the doctrine of Scripture, that flows and matures and gives energy to our godliness. We see that the role that sound doctrine plays is in the shaping of the godliness of our lives. Of course, more of this is to come, but we can see here that if the Christians in Crete would simply emulate Titus's godly example, that they would simply heed his sound doctrinal teaching, their own godliness would flourish. It is simply to teach, to receive, to submit, and to obey, and godliness flourishes. This is a simple formula. Now James will tell us as teachers that we should be careful because there's a stricter judgment for those who teach. There's a higher standard of judgment. The standard is to teach what accords with sound doctrine, the truth of the gospel. And yet if we faithfully execute that duty, your job, our job, is to receive that and to submit ourselves to it. And the formula is simple, that sound doctrine received and obeyed leads to godliness in your life. And the church flourishes. Godliness flourishes. Brothers and sisters, has the way of godliness and, and biblical exhortation been pointed out to you lately? Have you heard whether through the preaching here on Sunday mornings or an exhortation from a trusted brother or sister in Christ, the holding out of the gospel that you might receive it and obey it so that you would live a flourishing, gospel-centered, godly life. When these teachings is held out for you, what was your response? Well, unfortunately for most Christians, simply instead of aiming to implement such behavior or, or to take the needed action that's pointed out to us in these teachings. 
the initial call and the application of godliness and faithfulness is, is broken down into tiny parts. It's dissected and it's, it's used for parts in all the areas of our lives that really needed correction the least. Which means when we hear an exhortation from Scripture, we can take part of that and apply it to a life we feel like we're already doing well in and tend to avoid the application of that word to an area where we are not. But imagine for a moment if upon hearing in a sermon several direct applications of the Word of God to your life that if pursued sincerely and in faith would result in an obedience that glorifies God and strengthens your walk with Christ. Imagine if upon hearing such things, instead of paring them down through justifications and excuses of your own special circumstances, you immediately took action to do them. I'm not going to certainly advocate for blindly following and obeying any man. But what we can see here in the passage immediately is that Throughout Scripture, there is a desire to honor pastors and elders who teach sound doctrine, faithful biblical teaching, because the hearing of that word produces life. So the expectation here for the church in Crete is to listen to what Titus would say. If Titus preaches faithfully, and those who hear and heed and respond in obedience to Titus's word, not because they're from him, but because they are God's, will grow in godliness. So we learn the role of the teaching and instruction play in the work of godliness, but why would we heed their teaching? We learn then secondly that our godly behavior is to be rooted in such town doctrine. We heed the teaching, the admonition, the exhortation from the sound doctrine because our godliness and our behavior is to be rooted in that sound doctrine. For that which Titus is called to teach, it is meant to produce that which we are called to display. Sound doctrine produces godly behavior. And such godly behavior is said to accord with or to agree with sound doctrine which means that godliness not only flows from and is produced by doctrine, but that it also demonstrates doctrine as well. Well, friends, this is just the normative experience of, of maturation, of, of Christian maturity in the Christian life. To be taught the Word of God, to heed it and obey it, and then do so in such a way that demonstrates the gospel and the reality of the truth of the Word in your life, for the glory of God. A departure from this normative experience is not godliness. It is abnormal in the Christian life. So we need faithful teaching, but we also need hearts who are ready to receive such faithful teaching. Well, that's really the what of the passage. Sound doctrine leading to godly behavior. But now we are concerned with the how. If the what of Paul's instruction to Titus is godly living that flows from godly teaching, we turn to the how, namely, how does Paul expect this process to take place and to work out among the church? Well, we've already seen that for, for, for Titus, the answer 
and the elders that he appoints there are to teach soundly. That's, that's on the teachers, the elders, to teach soundly. But notice that he does not labor this point like he did in the first chapter where he tells more aggressively there's a need for these leaders. No, rather, Paul fixes the work of the word and the fruit of godliness to the communal and the relational culture of the local church. He fixes the work of the word to produce godliness. The fruit of the Spirit and the work of godliness, he fixes that to the communal and the relational nature of the local church. Or in other words, Paul surveys various groups within the local church and he offers clear guidance on how each might seek to live out the gospel, not only for themselves, but for the sake of the others in the body. The simple fact that Paul talks to older men, younger men, older women, younger women, to leaders, and to children, and to slaves, means that his eye is on the local church to embody these principles. What does this mean? It means then, firstly, that the work of Christian maturity and godly living is to be experienced in the context of Christian community. The work of Christian maturity and godly living is to be experienced in the context of Christian community. There is a training and an urging here that must make, take place among the body of believers for the cycle of godliness to move along unhindered. Implicit in the, in the urging, in the exhortation, is that as you grow in godliness, you model and teach others who need to grow in godliness so that they would mature and they would then teach others and so on and so on. This is the cycle of maturity and godliness in the local church. And if we do not obey sound doctrine, which leads to Christian maturity and righteousness and give ourselves to the Christian community, that cycle is broken and immature believers cannot grow. So the work of Christian maturity and godly living must be experienced in the context of Christian community so that that cycle of godliness moves along unhindered. And so to that end, friends, we must prize and prioritize the Christian community. We must prize and prioritize the Christian community, experienced most normatively for us through the local church. Each family has their own work and their own scheduling challenges. Each one of us are living our own lives. But if we care at all about the godliness of our lives and the strength and the endurance of our faith, we must all, nevertheless, labor to establish and maintain a culture of Christian community that does immeasurable good for those who seek rest and health and order and grace here. So the simple question then is, how do we prize and prioritize Christian community in our lives? What's that look like for each one of us? Well, let's, let's examine the picture here that Paul paints as to what this could look like. We'll move pretty quickly through this, but there, we see it here in the text. Starting in verse 3. He says, older men, like, older men are to be sober-minded, verse 2. Dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. 
So he's speaking here to older men, and, and, and I think he means literally older men, men who are older in age than the rest. Now, we often speak of men or women who are wise beyond their years, and certainly that means they possess what is abnormal for someone who is young because they're acting mature like someone who is generally older. But I think Paul here means to speak of those elders in the church, not elders as the office, but those who are older. The same as well for women. But to the older men here, he's, he's speaking primarily of those whose experience in age has refined in them a certain kind of wisdom and a certain perspective that only older saints have. Now, now I, I know, and this is a caveat here, that we, we tend to skew fairly young here at Foundation. And yeah, I, I mean, it's, it, you know you do when I'm one of the oldest ones in the room, you know, given a couple of gray beards, which we are eternally thankful for. Well, while we pray for this, while we may not have it, we can sti still in turn look to those who are elder because they experience and display a kind of refined wisdom and perspective that only older saints have. And so their insight is all the more valuable to those in the church. Parents with young children look to parents whose children are older, grown, maybe have moved out of the house, maybe who have now their own grandchildren. And we seek and desire to glean wisdom. What did you do here? How did you make it? Was it as bad as it feels? And we get real wisdom here. Couples look to those who have been married for years, sometimes decades longer. And we see that some of their perspectives mean that our troubles are small compared to the large scheme of faithfulness. And this is a privilege that only those older, more experienced, and wiser saints can offer. We may know this to be true, but it's their presence and counsel which reminds us to believe and trust in God's word as we receive faithfulness. And so through this wisdom that they possess, they're enabled to see more clearly what others may not see. They're less inclined to pointlessly argue or be less enticed about the desires of the flesh. This wisdom is the health of faith and love and endurance which is needed in the life of the church. So friends, we must pray for such older men to come alongside of us and to teach us but the same, of course, is true of older women there in verse 3. It says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. So all of these same qualities in the older men are, of course, shared with, with the older women in the church. But here, Paul picks up on something distinct among the older women that there is a sort of seriousness, or what he calls here a reverence, that is set into the lives of these women. And this seriousness means that this, the speech, particularly, and the conduct of the mature Christian woman is upright, and it's, it's aimed at avoiding controversy for the sake of the gospel. That's why he says that they're not to be slanderers. They're not engaged in gossip. They're dignified in their speech. So rather, the, the speech here, the instruction, the contribution of older women moves from unhelpful dialogue 
fraught with drama and the dilemmas of youth. It moves from that to edifying and good, and particularly for young women who are learning and struggling to adjust to be faithful in their own responsibilities. And the truth is that older women can do this much more effectively in the lives of younger women than any man could ever do. This is not to diminish the role of pastors who are to be men only and their teaching of sound doctrine and in their counseling and leading. But there is a need for women in the church to lead and to teach, primarily because they can step into a space that no man can. Older women are needed. Their perspective, the older men and women perspective is needed for us who are mature, immature, who are inexperienced, who are unwise. But not only does he speak to older men and older women, but he turns his attention now to younger men. And Paul links the relational role of younger women to the leading role of the older women. And he does this to draw out a potentially hard but important point that young women need to learn to love. Stay with me for a moment. Because you say, but wait, what else does a young, relatively, let's say, new married wife and a new mother do but love? My whole life as a wife and a mother is spent in loving my husband and loving my children. You mean I need to know and be taught how to love? Well, of course, that's all true. But it does not imply that you are able to love well. In fact, experience tells us that young men and young women are terrible lovers. And the reason for this, as Paul intimates here, is that younger women, and of course men, have not yet discovered what older mature Christian men and women have by their own experience. That is, that loving well is not simply an act of submission or a caring deed, but is a lifestyle of godliness and faithfulness that works for and serves the needs of others even above their own. What more glorious a place for this gospel truth, which is demonstrated in Christ's own sacrifice, service to others above the needs of his own life, is displayed than in the role of a wife and a mother. So he encourages younger women to place themselves under the leadership and guidance of older women so that their roles and responsibilities to, to, to live out the gospel in those areas of their life where they've been called can be preserved, guided, faithful. But then he turns again his attention to younger men and says here that the young men need self-control. If primarily Paul thinks women need to learn to love well, he thinks young men need more self-control. Now he's speaking here in generalities. Men need to learn to love well and women need self-control too. But Paul, in his infinite wisdom and experience and the Spirit's guiding of his writing, says that men, young men, must control themselves. Although it takes far less words to put it this way, the implication and the blessing of a self-controlled man cannot be overstated. Indeed, Paul places the model of self-control among the older men of the congregation. He's already said that the older men must be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. 
so that those young men who need to be self-controlled can follow in their footsteps. The young men may come to learn and observe such godliness at work. And lastly, Paul addresses those whose work is demanding and whose lives, even if for a short while, are not completely their own, there in verse 9, to slaves or to bondservants. And to this group, Paul encourages faithful and godly submission as they work to and for the glory of God. Well, how does this fit in with the relational community? We don't have slaves or bondservants here at the church, so is this part really relevant? Well, yes. So what could be more compelling than a slave honoring their master, working diligently for them, whose greatest hope and delight is in pleasing his true master? What could we learn from such a faithful servant in our midst? What trivialities of our lives would pale in light of the faithfulness of a bond servant offering his life to the yoke of his own slavery? Well, Paul, of course, speaking culturally to, to an institution in place there that isn't today, we can see still the same principles that says to work unto the Lord relationally to one another so that we can please God above all. And this is an example to the flock for those who would live such lives. So this snapshot of the Christian community really has at its core a desire to serve God in submitting to the leadership of those whom God has matured within the church so that the body may grow together and thrive or flourish in godliness together under the word of God as it's taught faithfully in the church. So what then must be done if foundation is to be the kind of church that Paul instructs Titus to help establish there in Crete? How might we possess the sort of culture and community in which older men and women lead commendable lives of godliness before the younger men and women of the church in order that the whole body might be built up in love? Two exhortations. First, we must remember that Christ died to free us from condemnation and unrighteousness. Christ died so that we might be justified before God, free from the condemnation that is each one of us deserving because of our sin. But he has died not only to free us from that condemnation, but as we saw in Galatians, he has freed us from unrighteousness or lawlessness. We read there in verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness or unrighteousness to purify for himself a people for his own possession or zealous for good works. That is, Christ's death not only secures for us our justification, but enables us in our sanctification. We have to remember that the redemptive work of God in Christ must always lead to changed lives. Christ died so that our lives would be transformed. He sacrificed himself, as it says there in verse 14, to redeem us from all lawlessness, to cleanse us for himself and people, to be intent on devoting themselves to good works, he says later in chapter 3, verse 8. So the motive for godly living flows from a full understanding in nature and the purpose of the atonement itself, of the gospel, of the sacrifice of Jesus. So if we're going to build community here that looks like what Paul is describing, we first must remember that it is the gospel which enables us to do this. We are sinners 
in need of God's grace. We stand under condemnation apart from Christ. But he, the Son of God, became man, took on flesh, lived a perfect, sinless life in obedience to the Father, was, was crucified, suffered God's wrath against unrighteousness, our sin, was put in the tomb and risen again on the third day, not only so that he may save us from that wrath, but that he might encourage and equip us to live righteously before God. That's the gospel. Secondly, though, we must remember that part of that good work which God frees us to do in Christ is carried out in genuine care and concern for one another in the gospel. So we look to Christ for our salvation and our sanctification, freed from condemnation and unrighteousness, and then we look to one another to carry the burdens and to live in genuine community with one another as we care for each other in the gospel. So apart from the context of the local church in which relationships that exist to build others up in the Lord for the sake of the gospel, apart from the context of that local church, none of us are going to ever reach the kind of maturity described here in Titus 2. So therefore, friends, find the godly among you. Look not only to their theology, but to their doxology. Not only to how they biblically answer questions faithfully, but how they live. Look to their marriage. Look to their parenting. Look to their evangelism. Look to their devotion. Look for those that not only know the truth, but practice it as well. Look for those strong marriages. Look for the obedient children. Look for joyful confidence in the midst of struggle. Look for honorable character. Look for humble spirits. And say, teach me. Of course, we may always lament the dearth of such mature Christians today, even in our own church. We desire older saints, mature saints to come and lead us who have much to experience into maturity. But we must nevertheless remember that the lack of older, godly men and women, while it may be a loss to the church, it does not excuse the sin and selfishness of the younger believer. The younger woman can't sin and blame it on the fact that there's no older women in her life to teach her. It may explain sin, but it doesn't excuse it. The older man cannot sin, but lament that there's no older man to teach them. In fact, it may be that we lack mature Christians at foundation that lead and serve others because you have not stepped up to your role in the communal cycle of godliness in the church. So pray for fruit. Examine your own life. Seek others who are strong and mature. Well, let me briefly then end with the why. Where do we begin to do this? Well, we begin with ourselves. The rest here of the passage tells us that our lives are to be a display of the gospel, of the glory of God in Christ as much as the church is together. So Paul says that our lives must, it says, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior there in verse 10. They're speaking particularly of the slave, but in humble, in humility, in service, and obedience, and in reverence, we submit all things so that in everything, our lives may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That is, they must show off the beauty 
of our redemption in Christ. There's something in the beauty of the gospel that deepens our commitment to it. And so you should consider that beauty. Consider and behold the gospel and its attraction. Consider the sacrificial love of the Father that He extends to us through the death of His Son. Consider the humility of Christ who would subject Himself to ridicule and rejection and slander and mockery, to torture and to death and to the wrath of God itself in order to purify and save a people from the sins. Consider the gift of the Holy Spirit who sows regeneration and repentance and faith into our hearts, who applies the work of Christ to our lives, who directs us and leads us in sanctification. For when we even for a moment stop to consider what the gospel actually is, we see that it is something to be admired, to be meditated on, worthy of the rumination of our minds. So can we say that the gospel is something we desire, and not simply for its effects, but for its beauty? Do we realize that that which makes us attractive to the world must itself be attractive? The gospel is beautiful. And one of the other attended effects then of the display of our godliness is that then our lives make the gospel attractive to others. For they see what's attractive about us is not our works, but the gospel which fuels them. And it silences such slanders. So we need to be able to, to know and be adorned with the doctrine of God. We also must have this gratitude for gospel grace. Verse 11 and 12 here, we simply look back on the work of Christ for salvation so that we have gratitude and thankfulness to the lives that accord with such grace, those older men and women and our own. We become thankful because the gospel has freed us from condemnation. We become thankful because the gospel has freed us from the bondage to sin. We become thankful because the gospel has empowered us to live faithfully. We consider the grace of God has appeared which brings salvation for all people, training us to renounce such ungodliness and worldly possessions because we live that way. But the grace of God has appeared in Christ and we are thankful. We live godly lives in the present age. But above all, as we consider this, we live with a hope for gospel glory. Gratitude for past grace is not enough. We're called to obey in confident hope in God's promise of future grace. He says in verse 13 that we do this waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Our hope is in the second coming. And this hope strengthens our obedience in this waiting in the in-between. This is God's way of producing genuine faithfulness through genuine love. But what's so hopeful about the second coming? How is that hope to motivate us? Well, the second coming is the ultimate outcome of our faith. This is what we're waiting and working forward. For Peter and for Paul, the end of our or purpose of our gospel-exalting, Christ-praising, God-glorifying faith is the proven genuineness of our faith through trials which is fulfilled at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is his return. So Peter, like Paul here, tells us to set our hope fully on the return of Christ by and through godliness. Setting our hope on Christ's return, it's not escapism. 
hoping one day for this world to be over because we can't handle. But it's affirming that our lives of distinct gospel holiness are to be caught up in the grand narrative of God's complete work of redemption, what he's been doing all along. So we, it says in verse 14, as the Lord's possession have been purified and called to godliness, that we may be found faithful upon his return. Hey, buddy. I'll be, I'll be done in a minute. Did you send him, John, to tell him to wrap it up? I'm done. The point here is this. Our hope is shaped by the return of Christ. Our godliness is shaped by the return of Christ. Our desires are reshaped by the return of Christ. So we plead with God that He alone must do what He has promised to do, to grow us into the picture of this church, that we would behold the gospel and see it in its beauty, that we would declare that beauty sing songs that remind us of that beauty, to press one another, to behold and live in light of that beauty, and to cultivate relationships with others who are serious about the gospel so that we can display that beauty to the world. That's the picture of the church. Friends, as this new year begins, my hope for us is that we take seriously the call to be the kind of church and the kind of Christian community that has at the center a hope, a radical hope for heaven that is rooted in sound doctrine and is expressed in loving care and concern for one another for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. How do we do this? Only by your own strength. May we see in ourselves the need to grow and to be changed. May we look to others that you've put in our lives to lead us in such growth. And together as a church, we may rely on the Spirit which you have provided, which is the source of such growth, so the fruit of the Spirit may spring up and flourish in our hearts, and that this church would be known not only for its care and concern for the community, but for the display of the gospel in the one another lives we live. We're thankful to you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.